I'm your producer, Todd Bartu, and this is Offshore Explorer. Offshore Explorer looks at the world from the Mariner's point of view, port by port. Together, we share stories that detail the important intersections between sailing, culture, and life, past, present, and future. Coming up on today's episode, an incredible true story involving running drugs, pirate coves, and evading a government blockade. But first, let me introduce our host, a lifelong sailor who has traveled the world, raced international port teams, and crossed the Atlantic countless times. A published author who has written for stage and screen, Mr. Scott Johnson. Thank you, Todd. How are you doing today? I'm doing pretty good. How are you doing? Well, I think... Uh... I think uh, our last episode, uh, the interview with uh, Steve Lapkin, uh, was very successful, and I I hope he got lots of people buying some pictures from him. I know that uh, I'm going to uh, put that in my my budget for the near future to to hang a couple of Steve Lapkin pictures up on my wall. Yeah, he's got some great pictures of those beautiful. Uh... Riva boats, the the classic wood and the the shiny chrome, uh, just amazing. I, I got a lot of feedback on Thunderbird, which is maybe one of the most famous wooden boats ever. Yeah, um, which we had discussed in it. So it was a it was a really kind of cool thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. So anyway, that's that's. I, I'm really happy. I hope people can tune into some of the past uh podcasts and uh pick up uh the narrative as we go along um i think it's i think it's going to be it's kind of a cool thing and steve was a very very cool uh cool guy to to interview and um i wanted to send also my uh uh my condolences and warm wishes to uh tim b at tim b at c on youtube uh, we interviewed Tim a few weeks ago, and uh, he went back to work and got stung by a hornet and ended up in the hospital. Uh, I'm pleased to report he's doing much better, and he's real. He's back at work, even though he was down for about a week. Wow! So that's the uh, the hazard of of doing this kind of a job. Well, I don't know if it's a hat. I mean, the, this, I guess, is one of those killer hornets that everybody was talking about. <laughs> those <laughs> murder hornets, made, yeah. Kind of made it out to the barge. But uh, yeah. anyway, it was, yeah, I just thought I'd report that. So get better, Tim, get better. I know you're listening. Great. And so what do we have planned for today's episode? Well, today I'm going to tell a story about mm, smuggling. And all of that, that that entails, and it's based on a true story. The names have been changed to protect the guilty. And the title of this entire thing is, is God Asked Me to Become a Drug Runner. Great. Take it away, Scott. I ran drugs for God. That's a fact. But let me explain how that happened. It starts really back in 1972. I was a part of the joint United States military advisory group in Thailand. Uh, It was based uh, in the embassy. 
what we did was, as we would sell weapons to the Thai government, um, we were trainers. So we would train the, the Thai soldiers and the commandos and how to use the weapons. That was pretty much uh, the front of what we were doing. The real thing that we were doing was running operations on the Thai-Cambodian border and running operations in Laos uh, when Nixon so handsomely bombed the Ho Chi Minh Trail. Um, many of you younger people won't remember this, but if you think the uproar in politics of what's going on today is a thing, um, bombing Cambodia, when we said we wouldn't bomb Cambodia, it was a huge, huge political problem for the United States. I was involved in it as a security guy, as, as a guide um, for a variety of reasons. And in that context, there were a couple of people that I met and became friends with. One of the people that I met was Tex. Tex was from the Bronx. Uh, he was, I guess at the time, maybe 28, 29. He was a master sergeant, had been around the block several times. Uh, he was also a very religious guy. And it was a time when we were doing a lot of things that wouldn't be exactly moral, wouldn't be exactly correct in today's society or today's military engagement. But anyway, Mech Tex was, was an amazing man, and, and I had spent actually quite a few hours um, talking with him about a variety of things, and we sort of helped each other um, decompress from the situation because he was also a squad leader and an operator, as I was, and it was just nice to be able to talk to him, even though he was a few years older than I was. Um, but he was, you know, he was my sounding board and I was his sounding board. And it, and it, it worked out really well. Um, we had a situation um, along the Thai border um, with Cambodia. Uh, Pol Pot, for you historians, if you remember that, is a terrible regime that killed... That was, it was a genocidal regime, killed millions of people um, for nothing, for nothing. Uh, just, it's a horrible, horrible war. Well, all along the Thai border with Cambodia, um, there were uh, refugee camps, and those refugee camps were run by the UN, um, Doctors Without Frontiers, and a variety of other uh, NGOs. So we were in Cambodia trying to figure out what the deal was going on there. And uh, Pol Pot was being squeezed by the Vietnamese. And as it would happen, this is just a recon thing, as it would happen, um, I ended up having cholera. Now, if you don't know what cholera is, it is essentially a bug that makes you sweat and every fluid that you have in the body 
comes out of everywhere, literally. And you essentially die of dehydration. I was in the field and Tex, we had done a joint operation we were supposed to meet and then cross back from Cambodia into Thailand. And the Thai border was protected. The Thai military was there. And we had to enter there. So anyway, he literally carried me, laid in a poncho and held on while I just sweat. I couldn't walk. I was just, I was done. Um, and so he literally dragged me for about five miles, five, six clicks at least, until we got across the border and then got me medical t- treatment. After I was in the hospital recovering, and you recover quite fast from it once you get the antibiotics and, and your fluids are restored, it's like, oh, okay, I'm good. But it is a devastating, people die of cholera all the time. So it was a kind of a devastating um, experience because you're helpless. You, you have no energy. I mean, literally, I could look at my arm and the pores of my skin were just glistening with sweat rolling out of me, almost like a fire hose. Tex took care of me, kept me hydrated as much as I could possibly be hydrated, got me to a hospital. It was a Doctors Without Frontiers hospital. Another story entirely, which I'll eventually get to. But anyway, that's that was my experience in that. I was in the hospital bed. At that point, I, had, I never saw text again. Because text, he went on with the mission, went back to headquarters, and then was um, repositioned or Actually, he got out of the service and returned uh, to the Bronx, New York City, the Bronx. I never saw him again. So after Tex returned to the Bronx, and I got out of the service about uh, a year later, um, he and I uh, stayed in touch. He got married. I got a wedding invitation. He had sent it to my parents' home. And, and you know, we never hooked up, but we're always, you know, close. We'll always be brothers in arms. It's just, we both said to each other, is like, you know, when we get out, we're going to go on and live our lives because we're not going to let the military experience be the only experience in our lives that, uh, that'll define us. We're going to have other exi- exciting and interesting and, and, and good um, experiences. We're going to do good in the world. And that was his, his thing. He kept asking me, are you going to do good in the world? Are you going to do good in the world? And I, and I, you know, I, I didn't know what doing good in the world really meant. Um, but I knew I was going to be kind and I was going to do what I could, which leads me up to the story itself because it's important to preface it, because this is not a religious story. This is not a a story about whether I found God or didn't find God or whatever the case may be. I've been in the foxhole. I've been shot at. I didn't see anybody around. That's my opinion. Anyway, it's neither here nor there for this, this thing. So the reason I'm sort of bringing this whole story up is, and admitting to crimes of drug running, drug possession, smuggling, entering foreign countries without permission, 
running from the United States Coast Guard, hiding from the U.S. Navy, and avoiding the Dutch Navy, deliberately violating a presidential order and a host of international maritime laws, is because I've written a movie. And if it wasn't for COVID, we'd probably be producing the movie. Um, it's called Not a Moment to Lose. And for you sharper tools in the shed, um, it is Jack Aubrey's favorite saying in the Patrick O'Brien novels, not a moment to lose. There's not a moment to lose. So the film is a romantic comedy adventure, uh, a little like Romancing the Stone, um, based on a true story, and it's based on, on this. And anybody that is familiar with my writing, and that would mean about 20 people, um, would understand that that this is a departure from the kind of movies that I write. But I wanted to be clear about delineating between what is a pirate and what is a smuggler. The difference between the two, it's like the difference between a capital murderer and a jaywalker. Pirates are very bad dudes. Um, they steal stuff on the high seas. They use force to accomplish it. Smugglers are what I would consider a more pleasant sort of criminal. Um, we're simply avoiding taxes in most cases. Um, we're often supplying a product that's illegal, um, but it's fulfilling a public and private need. For decades, smugglers have run duty-free cigarettes from Morocco to Spain right across the Straits of Gibraltar. They take, you know, they've got very fast boats, painted black. They load it up with cartons of cigarettes from Africa, and they blow across trying not to get caught by the Spanish authorities. And that's because Europe has a very high tax on cigarettes. And if you know anything about Europe, a lot of people like to smoke, although I think it's changed quite a bit. But people like smoking. And cigarettes are incredibly expensive, like $10, $12 pack. I mean, we're in the United States kind of in the same realm. And so smugglers can make some profit, you know, when you can buy a pack of cigarettes for a buck in Africa and sell them for eight bucks. It's, a, it's good business. But they always need transportation. So um, this is, a, you know, part of, it's not like they're, criminals in the sense that they're killing people or threatening people they're just you know using their boating skills to go from point a to point b without getting caught and if they get caught well they, they lose their boat and they go to jail and they understand this risk well for me i i had a uh, ct54 and um it's of a good tonnage that it can be a, it's an excellent ocean sailing boat um, it has a reasonable draft. Um, I can uh, get the boat into some very tight um, delivery bays. Um, and it was a charter vessel. And it was known as a charter vessel so that people would say, oh, yeah, he's chartering. He's probably got guests. And why is he in this really remote uh, bay? Well, he's, he's there because he's chartering. Yeah, he's, yeah nobody really cares right? So they would, they would let it. The one thing is, is she's slow, uh, in light winds, but if you give her a good 15 knot breeze or two, 
20 knot breeze. She, she just runs like a stallion. She has this sort of weight and kind of, um, which is different from other um, fiberglass boats with uh, thinner hulls. I mean, you feel you feel the pounding of the wave uh, echo through the boat and reverberate through the boat. But with the CT, I mean, it's like three quarters of an inch thick uh, fiberglass at the cap rails. So you can imagine what it's like below. So Robert Perry built this this thing. It's it's bulletproof in that regard, but it has this real strong feel. I used to have. Uh, charter guests come on and, and, and I would ask them what kind of car would this boat be and almost everyone would say it was between it was a Bentley or a Cadillac it had that nice smooth rolling comfortable soundproof kind of ride in heavy waves so my dalliance in smuggling and I say it was a dalliance started um in 1982. I was spending the summer chartering on the blue coast of Turkey. Um, I would sail from the Caribbean to Rhodes, Greece every year for two purposes. One, to avoid the hurricane season in the Caribbean, and two, to enjoy the sailing in the Mediterranean. But my real pleasure was the blue water sailing. It was the crossing. I am in constant awe of the ocean, and it never ceases to inspire me to be in the middle of the ocean, rolling along with some just beautiful waves, full sails, 20 hours, 24 hours, 48 hours, just five days, 15 days, just rolling along, the weather coming, the weather going. Just fantastic stuff. And to me, that is that is a total bliss. I was just had a conversation um, this morning. Um, somebody wanted me to... Um, listen to some of their meditation tapes. And, and I, I said to them, I said, look, you know, I don't need meditation. Um, all I need to do is go sailing. Um, I don't need self-help books. All I need to do is go sailing. You know, I don't need a 20-something, 30-something telling me how to live my life. All I need to do is go sailing. My season of chartering in uh, Turkey and Greece would, would be coming to came to an end, and I was ready to um, to to return to the Caribbean, Antigua specifically for the December charter boat show. I had to be out of the Mediterranean no later than say October fifteenth, rough. The weather is beautiful, really, up until that period, and then fall sets in, and there's lots of showers and winds, but the Meltemi wind, which blows from the northwest all summer, especially in August, dies, and the Scirocco takes over blowing from the southeast. And during the transition period, winds can kind of argue over who will blow the hardest. So you have to kind of be careful. Um, You know, sometimes I've been confined to a port for like weeks at a time, because the Maltemi wouldn't give up or the Scirocco wouldn't give up. And, you know, you're talking about, you know, gale force winds. And in fact, I was uh, going south of the Peloponnesian. And if, and if you look at Greece, you see at the bottom of, of, of the Peloponnesus are these fingers, okay, which are, you know, these, these long, long bays. And, and 
the fingers are really very high mountains, and I got knocked down by a catabolic wind. That's a wind that kind of picks up speed coming over the mountain, rolls down the mountain, and just... In fact, I was making a cup of coffee in the galley when we got hit by one of these catabolic winds, which can be which are hurricane force winds. It's ridiculous. It's like you're going along and, and you know, you got a everything's reefed down, you're doing like 25, 30, you know, knots worth of wind, and you're cruising along about 10, 11 knots, and you know, it's a little woolly of a ride, but you know, you're everything's under control. And then this catabolic wind comes down and hits you and just puts your mainsail and your spreaders right in the water so i'm literally holding a cup of coffee and as the boat begins to heel over i am like walking on the front of the of the oven just to stay this not spill the coffee and of course i run upstairs you know we turn the boat into the wind immediately you know um we start reducing sail um we were lucky we we tour um my number two Genoa, um, it just it was ripped to shreds, just totally ripped to shreds. You know, we got out on deck, we, we finally got that in, and, um, you know, we just decided to go with just a, a, a staysail and um, a little bit of a sliver of the mainsail on, uh, it, it totally reefed down. And we were still doing like 10 knots. And then the ca- another catabolic wind came. Same thing, but we didn't quite go over, okay? And we were more prepared for it. So as soon as we f- could hear it, you could literally hear it. It's like a, it's like a train engine. You, a locomotive is coming at you, and you just... And then, okay, turn the boat into the wind and just let it blow past you, and everything will be okay. And, of course, you get contrary seas because the catabolic wind is is coming off of the mountains it's not coming off of the sea so if you have a swell running you know west to east and waves running west to east and the catabolic wind is coming from the north um you know it's it becomes very very rocky and and the seas are very mixed up and very confused the story is is this is that um i was contacted by my agent who booked my charters in greece and there was a couple who wanted to be picked up in Gocek, Turkey. And for there's a number of my Facebook friends from Gocek and have sailed the harbor in, Go, in Gocek. And to take them to Athens on a week char- charter. My first inclination was to say no. Um, the trip would take me four days, and that, that would be with favorable wind, which in all likelihood was slim. Basically, I'd be eating it the whole way. Um, but if I did it, uh, my agent promised me that I would get a very fat fee. So he gave me all these assurances and this mysterious, I went down there to go check, uh, this mysterious couple, um, got on the boat. I explained to them that there might be some weather problems and, you know, getting him to Athens is going to be difficult. And, you know, I hope you're, you know, you don't get too seasick and stuff like that because it's going to be a slog. It's going to be a really hard slog to get up from Gocek up to Athens. We started out, and it turns out that these people were actually American. There's a couple named John and Joyce. 
Um, they were in their 50s. They were pretty physically fit. And, and they were like these very engaging New Yorkers. So I said, okay, great. Um, I was thinking it would be, you know, some Greeks or some Italians or Germans. I didn't know who I was getting. But, you know, Americans, at least I didn't have a language situation. Um, they were very, very nice. They, they paid my money up front. Um, you know, everything was going very smoothly. We had a drink. And I'm treating the whole thing as like a normal charter. Um, and John... I'll describe John briefly. He's, he was a very handsome guy in a kind of waspy way. And, and, and Joyce could have been like Rita Hayworth's double. Um, but they both became very kind of nervous. Um, and I said, oh, here, have some more champagne. Everything's going to be okay. And they looked at Mikey, who was my mate, and Laura, who was my girlfriend and chef, and they asked if it was necessary that Mikey had could come along. Well, that's a kind of unusual request. You know, can you get rid of the mate? And I explained that after I dropped them off in Athens, I was sailing directly to Antigua, and I needed Mikey and Laura's help to do the trip. John and Joyce glanced at each other and instantly moved on to a different subject. So in the midst of all this silent intrigue, several porters came to the stern of the boat with lots of baggage, carpets, a dozen wooden boxes. This amount of luggage was excessive even by steamer line guidelines. I joke that they must have gotten carried away shopping, but it would be no problem. We could fill it, we could put it all in one cabin. Mikey and I loaded the dunnage into Delphus. Delphus is the name of my boat. We filled the starboard cabin to the ceiling. We secured the rest of the salon. I guess that the dunnage weighed nearly a thousand pounds. And it won't be, and in this story, it's not the first time that this is happening. So we got underway just about, uh, just before dawn. And they were all four leaving before dawn. They were actually quite nervous about leaving. They just, they had to get off the dock. And I get that. I mean, I get the same way. And I'm sure a lot of you do out there, too. It's just like when you're ready to go someplace, like you wake up at 3, 4 o'clock in the morning and you're thinking to yourself, well, why don't I go? Let's go. Let's go. There's always reasons not to go. But, you know, you're just anxious. You want to get started. You feel better when you, you know, you can get that before the sun comes up miles in and uh, before the wind kicks in, get that up there. We got out. We got outside of uh, the bay at Gochak, and we just started going up the the Turkish coast. As I'm going up as far as Samos, Greece. If y'all want to check your your maps of that area, you'll see Gochak. Go up to Samos, past um, Marmaris Bay, and and just keep just keep going. You go. You know, you've got semi roads on the on the uh, port side then you got Simi on the port side and then you kind of go up through the chute there and there's plenty of sea room up there too towards Bodrum and then from Bodrum across to Samos which is right there so we're basically motoring all the way up and another kind of interesting thing that if if you sail in that part of the world is you know there's a there's always been a conflict between the Greeks and the Turks. 
So the Turks have all these military outposts up on the top of mountains. And plainly see them, they got a giant Turkish flag, you know, red with the crescent. And, you know, they watch where you're going. They actually catalog the traffic of, of going back and forth across the coast. And, you know, people going from Turkey to Greece and Greece to Turkey, there's a tremendous amount of smuggling that goes on between these two areas. Um, it's, it's ridiculous. And not only as we had seen um, with the Syrian exodus of people trying to get from Turkey to Greece to find freedom and a place to live and get to Europe and all the rest of that kind of stuff, but it's always been a corridor for uh, people. It's a very quick trip to be in Greece from Turkey. And, and so the, the Turkish government's on one side, the Greek government's on the other side, and there's soldiers, and there's, there's a lot of people driving around in military boats and all the rest of this kind of stuff. And so you have to be a little bit careful. But, you know, at this point in this trip with John and Joyce, I don't know that we're actually smuggling anything. I'm on a charter. That's the guys. I've got the paperwork. I've got the payment. I've got all of this stuff. They have a lot of stuff that they bought. Okay? I don't know about this stuff. It's their stuff. So I'm just the captain driving along. So we get up, and I shoot across the Aegean with the wind on my beam, just the perfect Miltemi kind of, you know, it's like 30, 35 knots, Delphus loves that kind of wind. You know, I got I got my my Genoa up. I got my staysail up. I've got my my uh, main you know reef just one point on the reef, and and I have my mizzen also up but reefed. It's only got one reefing point. So also my and I mean we're just flying along, and it's just fun sailing. It's just it's like gosh, I wish I could race somebody right now. Kind of sailing. So we shoot across. And um, John and Joyce asked me sort of, you know, kind of to the side, would all this baggage be a problem with customs? So I, I kind of went like, well, I, no, I, it depends on what's in the baggage, I suppose, you know. Um, and they're kind of looking at me and, and, and everybody's like looking at each other and, you know, we're sitting in the cockpit, and you know the spray's coming up over over the uh, over the the cap rails, and and they're just sort of smiling and nervous and smiling and nervous. And they said, "I said, you don't have drugs in your suitcases, do you?" And John and Joyce pulled me to the side out of earshot of Laura and Mike, and said to me directly, "said they were really depending on my cool." They're really depending on my swashbuckling attitude that, no, they didn't have drugs. But what they did have was antiquities. And I was looking at their faces and my hand on the helm. And I looked back. The boat was sort of rolling with this small sort of eastern swell. And I instinctively thought I should check the barometer. Because it was going down 
and there was going to be a blow because the Meltemi is a high pressure. And when that subsides and it drops down, you can get some nasty weather. I told both of them I was disappointed in their behavior. And, you know, they, Delphus could be impounded. I mean, he said, I said, the most important and, and strongest agency in the Greek government is the Antiquities Department. They are they they protect antiquities, you know, like it's your your grandmother's virginity. It is crazy how you know, and they're everywhere, and they're very cautious. They don't want antique because the whole country is full of antiquities just laying around. They don't want that stuff to leave. Okay, so they're really they're 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 a military force unto their own even though you know they use the military and the police for all this kind of stuff so antiquities in Greece and Turkey for that matter are big big deals okay so i was i was like i was about ready to to freak and i kept thinking about it like you know you guys are putting me in jeopardy right now and i mean we're in the middle of the aegean rolling along there's not much I can do. I can't turn around and go back. I just have to, con- I'm, I've been put in a position where I have to keep going forward. I mean, I, what do I do? Do I just go and dump all their stuff in the ocean? I could. But then their panic started to subside and my swashbuckling cleverness experience sort of kicked in a little bit and that night as we were as we were sailing the wind had died of course and we just had a nice 15 knot wind um i was having a glass of wine and um you know the auto helm was on everything was very relaxed actually john and joyce uh uh, Laura had made them, had made them dinner, had made us all a beautiful dinner, and um, we were, I, 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 if I remember correctly, and this is sort of quite a while ago, but I think we had uh, um, uh, breasts of duck, uh, canade, as we say in French, and and it was, it was just, I remember it being very delicious and sort of relaxing. You know, food never tastes better than when you're on a boat. Period. I don't care. You could be the worst cook in the world. Well, maybe not the worst cook in the world, but still, food's always going to taste a little bit better, primarily because of the, you know, it's the salt air and and everything. Just the whole ambiance of it makes it better. So I was sitting having a glass of wine, and just as a small aside, I'm just going to say that you know when I sail, especially doing a lot of passages and overnight passages, there's a couple of things that I always have for the night when it's you know in the middle of the night and and i make coffee but i put a little bailey's irish cream in it because the coffee makes me at night makes me a little bit edgy and and uncomfortable but if i put a little bailey's in it um i get a nice um you know i've got the coffee up and um, i'm feeling i feel pretty good and the other thing is is um, I eat uh, apples is very helpful because of the sugar in the apple and it's something to chew. 
and kind of occupies a few minutes of your time. And um, I always keep a, uh, a pack of uh, Starburst candies. Um, I, I know that's kind of all crazy and stuff like that, but that's sort of my kit for um, my food kit for, for sailing long distances at night. Helps me keep up. It stimulates me. So after sitting there for a while and sort of I've ignored essentially what they've said and they're both, John and Joyce are both really nervous about the whole thing. So they started getting even more nervous so they started explaining stuff to me. And and I had not told Laura. You know, Laura was my girlfriend at the time and and she was she was from North Dakota and she's just a super lovely person and really a great um, mate to have. And and Mikey was from actually I picked him up in Rhodes. He was uh, he had to escape Rhodes, Greece because um, the police were after him for some unknown thing. But you know this is life. Mikey was uh, straight up a Philistine. He was a person who knew all about literature but didn't know what it meant. Um, he could quote things, you know, lines from literature, but he didn't know what they meant. He was he was quite hilarious that way. But in any case, I didn't tell them what was going on. Um, and then what we got was that John and Joyce sort of, you know, came and sat with me after Laura. She went to bed. Uh, Mikey went to bed. I was at the helm by myself, and John and Joyce were there with me. And um, they were explaining that um, they had bought a bunch of uh, antiquities that had come from Iraq. And they had paid, they had kind of fallen into this, and they had paid the families that had these antiquities money that they needed to, to get out of the country or to survive or whatever, because Iraq at this time was just a complete mess. So there was millions and millions of dollars of this stuff coming. And we were carrying, according to Joyce, eight antique carpets worth millions of dollars. Um, there were boxes filled with Phoenician silver pieces uh, from a, a private collection was also worth like a million dollars. And the total tally was you know, about two and a half million dollars worth of antiquities. And John and Joyce had spent close to $750,000. And their plan was to slip out of Turkey by boat, go to Athens where they could ship the goods to the United States. And I said, you guys hadn't considered that the Greeks are like crazy with antiquities. And I said, you're going to get caught and you're never going to be able to ship this stuff why don't I take the cargo to New York for a price? So the barometer had dropped. We're getting lots of rain, which was good. Because the boat over the summer with the Meltemi, which is very dry, it has a, a lot of dust in the air literally when the rain came on all my standing rigging at the bottom on the deck or on the chain plates were clumps of mud 
that had been washed out of the stainless steel fibers onto the deck. They were like little pink mud makeup like. And they had they had gotten in all the stainless steel wire. So that was good. And the boat was suddenly amazingly clean. So I'm still going along and we're kind of getting closer to um, Athens. And the weather got really shitty. There's this clash going on between the low pressure system, high pressure system, and, you know, change of seasons, that whole thing. So it was like a really big kind of fall storm, which anybody who's been to Greece knows that they they come and it's just some really ugly, really super windy, 50, 60 mile an hour winds. Um, and trying to get into, I was trying to get into uh, Piraeus, and the wind was just, just like even the ferries were not coming out. That's how bad the wind was. But we managed to get inside. We managed to get the boat on the dock. And even getting the boat on the dock was a was a trick unto itself. And we were so lucky to get it on there. You know, normally you do Mediterranean mooring. You know, you, you go in stern. You drop your anchor. You back up off your anchor. You use the anchor to control your bow so it doesn't blow either way. And then you use your prop and you either walk it or you try to slip your boat um, straight back in between two boats and maybe lean on one boat as you get closer to the dock, if that's possible. I always like to pick a spot that there's another boat that if it's really windy, it's sort of the downwind boat. And if I can get my stern past their bow and walk with the fenders along i can kind of lean up against that boat while i'm coming back to the quay get my lines out and then straighten the boat up with the anchor chain being tightened and of course then the the stern lines and making sure i put two spring lines so it forms like an x in the back and you know then we're all good to go so it's just something that i i do or think about all the time with that kind of thing so anyway john and joyce by the time we got in the boat both of them had spent a considerable amount of time throwing up it was the seas are just really rough and i don't i don't get it they couldn't wait to get on land and when they got on land they, john got on his knees and kissed land he was you know so terrified and we were kind of lucky at that point because uh, one of the agents that works for that works with uh, the company who is my agent down in Rhodes um, said, "Hey, how you doing? I'm glad you're here. This, that, and the thing." I give him my papers. He disappears, comes back. Nobody inspects the boat. We get the stamps. Everybody's good. So John and Joyce can go get on the plane. So we have the. We get everything settled. We get everything cleaned up. Laura is like really kind of upset with me about the fact that I'm not communicating with her. Uh, welcome to relationships. So I sat down with uh, John and Joyce in a kind of uncomfortable situation. We, we went to a restaurant and we sat and we kind of hashed out what the deal was. 
So I was going to sail back as soon as I could. Um, I was just, just going to sail. And um, I was going actually to go find some more uh, mates on the boat because uh, Laura had decided at that point because I was uh, not communicating and she was sort of fed up with the sailing and all the rest of this kind of stuff. And she was going to, she actually literally got on a plane. The last time I saw her was, you know, looking back at me in a taxi cab as she went to the airport. Mikey, he was going to stay around. Um, he wasn't going to go anywhere. He, all he was worried about was getting out of Greece. And so I went and we found a, I found a couple of more guys to come on the boat with me. I just needed four guys myself. And normally what I would do is I would pick up somebody to cross the Atlantic as a charter, but that wouldn't be until Gibraltar. I picked up a couple of guys, got the thing on, made the deal. I was going to deliver all this stuff to New York City. But first I had to swing through the Caribbean. And that's what I did. And I sailed all the way to St. Thomas, um, offloaded the guys, then sailed all the way up the coast uh, to New York City, literally came into New York City and, and docked over at the uh, Liberty Landing Marina right there, which is on the Jer is Jersey. Um, John and Joyce met me. Um, they had a couple of guys with them. They took all the, all the stuff off the boat and um, off they went. And, you know, the thing is, is that if you go into New York City, the, this was back in the time, is that the immigration was in the World Trade Center in Manhattan. So you had to go to the World Trade Center to, to clear in. And Customs was actually at the Newark Airport. So you had to call them. And they would ask you, do you have any contraband? Blah, 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 blah. And you go, oh, no, sir, I don't. And then they would say, okay, fine, and then hang up. The American is like, okay, <laughs> whatever. Um, so in any case, um, we offloaded that stuff. And that was like my first, like, okay, smuggling kind of experience. And, and I made really very good money at it. And I was thinking to myself, you know, it's I could do that. I, maybe I should go back to Greece and Turkey and then come back again. I mean, I, the antiquities thing, from what I understand, I mean, it's what John and Joyce actually were doing was actually saving people's lives. And they were, as it turns out, they were incredibly wealthy. And their intention was to give all of the stuff they smuggled out was to keep it and and return it to the people that were the own the actual uh, owners of it and so that made me feel a little bit better rather than just you know the whole antiquities idea so it's i know some of you may be thinking like oh man antiquities that's like illegal and it's wrong you're stealing people's heritage well sometimes you got to get the really good stuff out of a country that's collapsing and in this case, that's what Iraq was doing, was collapsing. And, and people were working to, to, to get those goods out of the country to preserve them. And 
they were working outside of the bounds of governments because governments sometimes can't um, be flexible in the rules of, of how these things work. So anyway, that's kind of how I first took that first step. And, and you know, I'll say, it's like, look, I'm just a transportation guy. Like, you know, that's all I am, just a transportation guy. And I'm, I'm not putting my up, myself up as some sort of righteous, moralistic kind of person. I'm absolutely the opposite. And in fact, I say anytime somebody starts being righteous, you know, you better check yourself. This was a great experience for me. So I gained a lot of confidence. I took the boat from New York back down, you know, through Bermuda and back down to uh, St. John and St. John of Coral Bay, which was my home base. I, I had a mooring there. Um, I ran my charter business out of there. You know, it would be, I would spend the summer in Greece and Turkey sailing and then sail back. And then I would be in, spend the winter uh, in the Caribbean and based in St. John. Um, I would do the British Virgin Islands. Eventually, over 18 years, I switched from the British Virgin Islands over to St. Martin, uh, where I based myself. And, you know, St. Martin, St. Bart's, Statius. St. Kitts, Antigua, and sort of worked that general triangle for a while. Um, but while I was there in St. John, I was um, working on my boat. And as many of you have a boat, know that the work on a boat is never, 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 never done. So I was doing some varnishing. I had actually had to replace one of my spreaders. You know, Robert Perry designed, my masts were wood. Um, they were spruce. And having designed uh, the masts and the spreaders out of spruce, I had a, I had a spreader that actually uh, split. So I managed to get the right... Um, wood and again managed to get the spruce and fashioned it and I replaced the actually the lower two spreaders um, I did both of them and uh, that was sort of the project I was working on at the time because they're very important to have good and I also installed some deck lights on the on the spreaders um, I found those to be I liked having deck lights you know especially when you're at anchor you know Deck lights under your spreaders, your two spreaders, kind of gives the boat a kind of cool look. And I don't know. It's just, I don't know. It's like putting extra lights on your, your Chevy, whatever. So I was there working, and I went into, uh, into a bar there. Um, it used to be called Red's, um, and it was, it's in Coral Bay. And uh, I don't know what it's called today, but back in the day it was called Reds. And, you know, the New York Times had, had some people come in and write an article, say it was the best damn hamburger in the Western Hemisphere. And it's an open-air bar, right? And a lot goes on there. But 
you got to understand Coral Bay was Coral Bay was, you know, that goes this Coral Bay was there since Spanish came by. I mean, the donkeys that are all over St. John, they basically came, the Spanish brought that. So Coral Bay is a very old place that's seen a lot of people. And one of the things that it had seen is a lot of smugglers. And in fact, half of the boats that are in there are boats that were used for smuggling drugs, essentially from Venezuela or Colombia, um, up into the United States. And, but they based themselves in, in, in St. John. It was kind of where you would come. That was the first leg. And then, it, then somehow it would disappear. The drugs would disappear. So the atmosphere of all these sort of swashbuckling, crazy sailors, who are really, by the way, very, very good sailors. Um, I, and in fact, in some of the uh, Antigua uh, Classics Race Week, there are a few boats in the beginning that won their classes that their real life was in smuggling drugs because they were fast. They were wood, which actually now radar is a little bit different, but back in the day, it was harder for radar to pick up a wooden boat. It would, you know, if you were over the horizon, it would be dif more difficult to pick it up. So in any case, um, a very important thing. Because now if you throw up an aluminum stick, boom, they can see you. Because anybody with radar can see that aluminum stick and the radar deflectors, of course. But these guys, you know, these are great. Very funny, great people. But during the 60s and early 70s, a lot of people who were essentially hippies had left the United States and settled in Coral Bay to create a kind of community, okay? And they didn't want to, you know, monetize it. They just wanted to live. They had this restaurant. I mean, the restaurant, they didn't care if anybody came in. Um, there were a lot of locals that would just, you know, sit at the bar and drink all day. There was a corner of the bar where you could smoke pot. Um, even though, you know, it was illegal, no, you know, you just sit over there with those guys and that, that'll be fine. And, and the police chief was in on it because the police chief was also one of the big drug dealers. And, you know, it was just a crazy sort of interesting atmosphere. And one side story to this whole place is they had, they used to get people who get crazy drunk there and they used to have what they call quarter horse races, now, you're all thinking like, oh, yeah, horses, right? Well, yeah, there are horses, and there's stables, but that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about a race where you take your pants off and you put a quarter between your cheeks and you run 50 yards with that quarter. Then you squat over a glass of beer, drop the quarter in, drink the beer, show the quarter in your mouth, and run back. And the winner of that race gets free hamburger or something. It's called quarter horse races. As crazy as that sound, one of the great winners was the famous Mets pitcher, Tom Seaver. Nuts. 
So back to the story. So I'm standing at the bar and this sort of general shadow comes over me and I turned around and there's Tex. Tex has got an extra 50 pounds on him for sure. He's still as big as big. Um, He's got a collar on and he had become a minister. And I looked at him and I said, holy shit. Like, you know, and it was like, and he says, I've been looking for you. I, I, you know, I was like, what? I mean, we were so, I was so excited to see him. And now he was a pastor and, you know, that made sense to me that he would go in that direction as an, as a vocation. Um, And, and, you know, it was like old home week and, and, you know, we, he doesn't drink but, you know, I'd have a drink and we were talking and, you know, what brings you down here? Why are you looking for me? Well, the rest of this kind of stuff. And this is when God asked me to smuggle drugs. Because God, in this case, is Tex. He's the one representing God that said, look, I need your skills. I need your boat. I need you to do this for me, for the community and for people and to spread God's word. I said no. And he just patted me on the back. He said, no, no, you're doing it. He said, you're doing it because you owe me. Because I carried you for five, six clicks from Cambodia into Thailand. I saved your life. So you're going to do this for me. I said, isn't there another way I could like repay you? Nope. This is how you're going to do it. I just had to listen to him, which I did. So, in the Bronx, he had developed a church, his church, and he had uh, quite a bit of Haitians in his church. Um, as he liked to refer to them, they were the Haitians of um, the other choice. Uh, in other words, mostly Haiti is a Catholic country. But there's quite a few Haitians that are actually been evangelized and are not are pseudo Catholics, but really uh, also Protestants. And he really didn't care; just they were just the members of his church. So politically, what was going on was a junta, a military, had taken over Haiti, and the there was this whole upheaval in the government, and and at the time. Uh, Bill Clinton had had put an embargo on Haiti, and the U.S. military was going to embargo to pressure the military to give up so that the the duly elected government, which all the governments in Haiti are up until recently were were very bad. So that was the case. So he put in Clinton's executive order was to put an embargo on there to put pressure the government, which was run by the military now, into allowing, you know, the, the civilian government to take over again, even though the civilian government was just terribly corrupt. But in any case, it's typical politics, kind of Caribbean politics. There's a lot of moving parts to it. And it's another thing. The only thing that I really, really had to know was the fact that 
he wanted me to run drugs into Haiti. And I couldn't get my head around drugs because the only drugs I would think I was, okay, you want me to run cocaine in there or marijuana or, or heroin? What is it? What drugs? And he said, no. He says, I have two tons of pharmaceutical drugs. And what these are, are your heart medications, your diabetes medications, all those little medications that we all run to the pharmacy, have refilled every month or so, um, anxiety medicines, all these sorts of things. Well, the people of Haiti didn't have these things. There were people that were diabetic that weren't getting their insulin. There were, you know, people that had serious uh, heart problems that couldn't get their medication because they, there was no medication to be had because of the embargo. This is the thing about embargoes that people don't even realize. You know, you could pressure a government, but really you're, you're making the people go through a lot of pain, a lot of pain, and people are dying because of this. So as he laid out his case and that he had put all this stuff together, like all the drugs and stuff, they were here on the island in St. John, and he wanted me to go, that he had found me, he had found my charter boat, because I advertise, obviously, and he wanted me to come collect all this stuff and take it to Haiti. And I tried to explain to Tex, I said, dude, like, do you understand how complex and how dangerous what you're asking me to do is? I said, first of all, I said, going is one thing with two tons. You know, the boat will sit low in the water. I can handle two tons, okay? Um, it's a big strain. I'm not going to be fast, so I have to be coy and slide, you know, slide in and out of places. I got to keep myself close to the, to the, the, the islands and, and the shore. so that and, and there's a lot of treacherous reefs that stick out. You know, there's a lot of things going on out there that you can't see. And I said, I'm not really familiar with Hispaniola as, as a general island. I, I don't know it. He said, well, you can get charts. I said, yeah, I can get charts. Yeah, I can. I said, but, you know, what you're asking me to do is there's a, there's a, anyway, if I was going to do it, I had to stay close to the shore. So any kind of radar would you know, I would either be seen as a very, very small fishing boat right close to the coast, or they wouldn't see me at all. I'd be clutter against a mountainside. Unless, of course, it was an airplane, which would be a completely different thing. So we're having this discussion in Reds. And the whole place is, you know, going about their business. And he said, Tex said to me, he says, you know, you owe, again, you owe me. You have to do this. And he says, and I'm not going to ask you twice, but you got to do it. I said, okay. I said, okay, fine. I'll do it. I'll do it. I'll do it. And he says, and you got to pay for it. You know, I'm not going to give you any money. This is your donation to the church. And this is what we talked about a long time, to, a long time ago. Doing good. This is doing good. This is what you should be doing in the world, doing good. 
So I went on and I tried to explain the whole John and Joyce antiquities, smuggling, da 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 kind of thing. And he says, that's not, you were not doing good. That wasn't, you were just a tool in somebody else doing good. This is your chance to do good. I said, well, I'm a tool of you doing good. And he goes, yeah, you have a point there. Tex was always funny about that. He always can, he would concede, but you know, he already made his point. So it was like, even though I corrected him, he still would be right. And I would realize that right off the bat. So I said, well, look, I still have a couple of repairs I have to do to the boat. You know, I've got, I'm, I'm doing this and I'm doing that and I, I got to get fuel and, you know, I got to figure out the weight and I've got to figure out how we're going to do this. And I said, um, and I, I, I'm, I'm going to need somebody to, to help me to go along who's going to be willing to risk their life of going to prison. Because first of all, not only did I have to do, deal with the U.S. Navy, which is out there, okay, because they're based in Puerto Rico. I got to sail past Puerto Rico. And they're in the water all over the place. And the U.S. Coast Guard, same thing. They have a big U.S. Coast Guard base there. So the Coast Guard's everywhere. And don't get me started on Coast Guard. Then I have to deal with the Dominicans and their Coast Guard. Then I have to deal with the Haitians and their Coast Guard. And I have to deal with the Haitian military, who is very nervous about the country being invaded. So they're watching every port, every beach, everything in Haiti and reporting it. And this is going to be... And if they catch you, you're going to prison. Forget about your boat. You'll never see it again. But you're going to go to prison and they'll throw away the key. Or they'll shoot you. They do shoot you. So I make, I make this point. And Tex just looked at me and he smiled. And he says, Do you remember when, when we first went to Yudin? Uh, and in northern Thailand, it's Air Force. It's a Royal Thai Air Force base that we operated out of. And I said, "Yeah." He says, "You remember that uh, that sign that was at the front, you know, a front gate that had all the bullet holes in it?" I said, "Yeah, I remember that sign." What did he, and he get, looked at me and he goes, "What did it say?" He said, "Only dumbasses pass this point." And I said, yeah, we passed that point many, many, many times. He says, yep. He says, but it takes a special kind of dumbass to do this kind of work. I said, yep. And he said, when can you leave? And I said, day after tomorrow? Good. Good. He says, I think I'll have a drink. I looked at him. I said, I thought you said you didn't drink. He says, I haven't had a drink since I came home in 1972. It's 1994. He said, but for this and the fact that you and I hooked up again, I'm going to have a drink with you, my friend. So we had a drink. He had a rum punch. A piece of pineapple in it. There's sometimes when you're a brother in arms that the connection is far greater than anything you could possibly imagine emotionally 
I'm never forget him tapping me on the shoulder and us agreeing and standing there at that moment, just as, you know, it's almost like we were the world, you know, that song, we were the world, Quincy Jones, but the world was just us. So a couple days passed. Um, we I brought the boat down close to the onto the dock, and in St. John there isn't much, there isn't a dock really, and my boat is too big to to get too close. But you know it, it's a short dinghy ride back and forth. So I stowed all these all the um, drugs, um, and what I did is I sort of recentered them around the cockpit. I took out some of the furniture that I had in there, some of the free floating furniture and put it in storage on St. John. And I calculated that I didn't need all that much water. So, you know, I left about 50 gallons of water in the, in, in the tanks. Um, I held 900 gallons of water and I had a water maker. So, um, but the 50 gallons would be enough to kind of lighten it up. And as far as fuel, um, I had one bad fuel tank, which I never used or never filled. And um, what I did was uh, I filled up with fuel. I wanted to carry as much fuel as I possibly could. So I had 600 gallons of fuel, which would have been more enough to get me to Haiti and get me back. Um, a couple of small things. Um, my sails were all in good shape. Um, I had actually about a month before put a new main on and, um, I had, um, a brand new, uh, mizzen. And if anybody is out there sailing a catch, I think you realize that having a catch, a mizzen is just, that's like the, that's like the driver. That's, that's the, that's the engine that sort of pushes. You can have all the slots from your Genoa, which is, you know, that's kind of like the pretty sail and then the mainsail. And, but boy, I'll tell you what, you put, you put a nice size mizzen on, on your boat. Um, you'll find that you, you can't go anywhere without that mizzen. It makes you, it makes you, it gives you a lot of power, gives you a lot of control. It's very helpful with the helm. Um, it makes it easier to steer in a lot of cases. And, and the same goes if you have a yawl. You'll find that, you know, learning how to deal with those sails and how to make them be most efficient um, is a real joy and a pleasure to, to, to learn. And, and I would tell everybody out there that if you, if you have a, 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 a mizzen or a yawl, please, you know, experiment, figure out how to make it the driver in your boat. Don't worry about your main. Don't worry about your general. That all that stuff will fulfill itself. So we, I left out of Coral Bay and went south of St. John. I was going to run south. I was actually going to move the boat a little further out because in Puerto Rico, you have this little island called Viecas. And Viecas is like where the Navy um, does artillery exercises and they blow shit up. Um, there is a, there's a uh, area that you can go inside of Viecas and Puerto Rico 
Um, but you could be stopped by the Coast Guard or the Navy or anything because it's, uh, it's a dangerous area, supposedly, you know. And if they're firing out there, then you're, you're kind of screwed um, because you have to turn around and go back. But if you go on the, on the southern side, uh, the Caribbean side, um, because we're going um, west, almost due west, 270, so you go outside and you swing around the ACUS. So you're outside of all the, uh, the zones um, that the Navy controls out there. Because at the time they were still, in 94, they were still blowing up that poor island. And it's changed now. Um, they gave that up as a, as a routine. So around Puerto Rico, um, I stopped at the western a small marina at the western end of of puerto rico that was filled mostly with fishing boats um we pulled in there to get some some to do a little recon get a little information to see what was going on between um you know puerto rico and hispaniola what's 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 out there what are people talking about so that meant that i had to you know the boat was loaded I had, uh, I should mention, I, I didn't mention it, but uh, I did I did pick up Florence. Uh, Florence is, uh, was a, a, a French girl that um, she was selling beignets on the beach uh, in St. Martin. Um, and she had, she was just bumming around um, the Caribbean. So she was on St. John, and, and, and uh, when I was started to look for somebody, a mate, um, because I can sail the boat by myself. Um, I don't need somebody to sail the boat, but I, I do need somebody that maybe can handle the boat if I'm doing something else. So, and it turns out she could. She was really a pretty good little sailor. Um, and uh, she came from La Rochelle, which is a famous uh, sailing uh, community, and her her father was a sailor and her brothers were sailors and all the rest of this kind of stuff. And she was a pistol to say the least. So anyway, uh, Florence was coming with me. So that was, that was the mate on this little illegal adventure. And she, she knew what the circumstances were and she found it to be very exciting. So off we went and we started looking around and she was very excited. Of course, you know, she's in a bar and, you know, we had no relationship other than, than I was the captain and she was the mate and I was paying her to come with me. So um, she liked, uh, there was a lot of flirtation going on in the bar, but she did find out quite a bit of information. And the Coast Guard had essentially allowed, its, had essentially only blockaded half of the island, the, just the Haitian half. It couldn't blockade the Dominican half, but there was a sort of a line. The fishermen were complaining that they couldn't go into to Dominican waters and fish over there because the American Coast Guard was stopping everybody, and it was a sort of a general pain in the butt. Um, Americans have a very sense, and I hope no one gets offended by this, but Americans have a sense of, or they have a sense of, of non-boundary. They don't, they don't understand that, you know, People don't like being bullied or pushed around. Um, they want you to, I want you to stay in your box. And Americans always get out of their box and they make everybody uncomfortable. 
Um, and it's that's why we're always looked at with some degree of suspicion and distrust and just like, you know, it's just like the bully on this block. Who wants to be around them? Um, and there's... It's this hubris that doesn't need to exist in order to be good and efficient and do your job. So we found out this information. So I knew for a fact that I could go along the southern coast of Hispaniola, which in this case was the Dominican Republic, and pretty much not be boarded or, or, um, uh, or have to put into anything, put into any harbor. But there were a couple of places that I knew existed that if I was being tracked, what you have to understand, you see, when you're smuggling, um, the Coast Guard and the Navy people, they'll track you. They'll follow you for, you know, hours on end to see where you're going. You know, if you change your course, um, if you try to, to evade them, they will look for that kind of stuff. And then they'll, then they'll jump on you and they'll... You know, they'll pounce. But, you know, I knew that. So I, there were a couple spots that if I was being followed um, or I got a sense that my, you know, my spidey sense was up that I could put into and sort of hide the boat, so to speak. And these two areas, these two places were two. One was a stream, okay, that, go, that comes out of the mountains and literally, you can, you can go into this very small bay. I'd say it's about the size of a grocery store parking lot, an average size. And you could literally back the boat up into mangroves and completely hide in there. And, it, and on the other side of the mangroves, okay, is a waterfall that you can't see from anywhere. And you can go up on the top of the waterfall and you can survey the entire southern coast of Dominica all the way to the border with Haiti. It's a remarkable place. Only the locals know it's there. Nobody ever goes there. But it's an old pirate haunt. And I actually remember reading somewhere about this little pirate cove hideaway which became very, very, very good. This is, you know, it's like some of um, the uh, uh, Jack Aubrey stories, you know, not a moment to lose and, 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 and you know, fall, flying false flags and, you know, sailing under the cloak of darkness and how to hide from boats and fog banks and all the rest of that kind of stuff is actually very useful information because literally it's written by captains that have actually done that on sailing vessels. And it helps. So we're going along Dominica, daytime, whatever. I'm looking out. I'm just my eyes are all on the ocean side. Binoculars. You know, I, I climb up. I'm, I'm up on the spreaders and I'm looking out. And, you know, I can, I can see a couple of Navy ships out there. And they're not doing anything but just kind of sitting out there. And I'm sure they could see me during the day. They could see me because they have very powerful uh, binoculars and radar and all the rest of that kind of stuff. 
and I figure I'm safe from any sort of inspection as long as I'm in Dominica. And as you know, the island of Hispaniola is divided between the Dominican Republic and Haiti, right? Right about in the middle. So I'm sailing along, and we're getting closer. We're about 40 nautical miles from the Haitian border. And I look up, and I see this wake, not a wake, but a bow wave um, off on the horizon, and it's a Coast Guard vessel. Well, it just so happens that one of the, the um, typical uh, summer uh, squalls is happening. So it's, it, the, it's black. You know, you can see the clouds are coming. It's going to rain like cats and dogs. And I can see this Coast Guard vessel. I can see its bow, you know, blowing up a big wave. It's coming at me fast, as fast as he can go, right? And the rain got to me first and covered us between him and myself. He was coming from the, the um, kind of south-southwest. I was, I was heading due west. The rain came, and it was just blinding, blinding squall kind of rain. So I was right near that little pirate's cove, and I just ducked into that pirate's cove, dropped the anchor, Back that son of a gun, going astern, got it. I literally ran into the mangroves and tied myself off, just like boom, 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 boom. And and Florence was doing, she was tying lines and everything else like that. And we're just sitting there. And I mean, it is gushing, gushing. And then it stops. And anybody that's been in the Caribbean knows that's, that's like normal, like Florida stuff. And then we see the, the Coast Guard cutter fly past the entrance. He's, he was going after us. And we just sat there. So we we're going to sit there and wait until the, next, until the next morning. And we're just, just being patient. And then, then like two hours later, the Coast Guard vessel comes by slowly. And they never even saw that. They never came into this creek. Because it, at first, this creek doesn't look like you can get your boat in there. I mean, from the outside, you know, because the trees and the, there's the sandbar there. And it just looks like you can't get in there, but you, you really can. I did it. So, and then, you know, we were disguised and, you know, he, he left us. He never discovered us. So the next morning like at one o'clock in the morning i decide we're going to try and get into haiti now the bay that i'm going into haiti is full of coral and coral heads and it's a it's a big bay um it's got two kind of sections like two lobes there's the southern part of the bay um, which is kind of open and mostly fishing boats and stuff go into. And then there's the northern part of the bay, which is full of uh, uh, coral heads and, and, and little reefs and all the rest. And in fact, there's a reef running from the land that runs from the land side, kind of almost like a, a breakwater across this bay. So you have to go very far. You have to go south about four or five miles and then you can then you can go across the reef. 
because you literally you, it's literally the reef is 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 ankle deep water you know unless there's a wave and then there's waves all over it but normally it's about ankle deep so you have to go and kind of come around and then go and where i'm going is this little tiny village in the, the eastern side of this this bay and there's fish there's some fishing boats there um, but you have to understand people are terrorized because of the government, because of the, the troops and the soldiers and all the rest of this stuff. So I get the boat and we anchor, we're in Haiti, we anchor just north of the entrance to this bay in essentially open water. It's not really a great place to anchor, but I didn't want to go in the bay during the light. I just wanted to pretend like, okay, maybe we're just here diving or fishing or whatever the case may be and just let the boat. I was maybe 40, maybe 20 yards, 20 yards from the, the beach. Um, very deep water at that point, um, surrounded by coral. Um, and I just, we just sat there for an entire day. And, and, and amazingly, we saw the Navy out there um you know it was like three four miles out going cruising back and forth um we got hailed twice once by the dutch navy asking us to identify ourselves and 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 a second time was um by the american by the american navy asking us to identify ourselves and what i did is i put florence on and told her just just speak french like you don't understand what they're saying and they never bothered us after that. It was a great language skill uh, bluff, so to speak. So oh, some stupid Frenchmen over there fishing. I don't know. Any case, so that night after it got dark, I guess about 10, 1030 at night, I decided to go into the bay. Now, one of the things about going into this bay, and I had not been in this bay before, and I wasn't sure I could get in, or I wasn't sure, I, was, I definitely didn't know I could get out. But I had collected, um, I had bought a box of those light sticks. And I had, um, you know, the ones you break, like the green ones. So I had a box of those, and I tied some fishing line and some fishing weights to uh, the the lights so as when i determined like okay this is we got to get this is where we have to come so we threw out the two lights to into the water so that they sit and they would just float there so we could see them coming out okay and and you know you can mark it on your gps i the gps at the time in 1994 was not particularly accurate and really you shouldn't depend on it in that kind of sense Today, you, you could, I suppose. But back then, it wasn't even, it wasn't something you would do. So we marked them with these two um, uh, lights and then stick lights. And then I went through maneuvering based on the charts that I had. Um, I had Florence on the bow and as she would see a coral head kind of coming up because they sort of glow, coral heads. You know, there's a plankton around them and there's, phosphorus and and they have this that you you could see them from the reflection and and i might add that it was um it was a waning moon 
So the moon was only up until about noon or midnight, I mean. It was only up until about midnight and and then it would be very dark. But I wanted to use it to get into the bay. I needed a little bit of diffused light so I could see some of these coral heads because there's nothing like running your, your keel up on a coral head. It's, it's very disturbing. Um, you might break the keel. You'll definitely, you know, stop. Um, I've scraped a few in my day, but uh, I've never been stopped straight up. So we, we begin to make this maneuver back and forth. Nope, we can't go there. Literally stopping the boat, throwing it into reverse, okay? Going to port, driving port, looking at the land, taking, you know, literally taking readings um, on landmarks on land with lights to figure out exactly what our position is. You know, we'd go down, like, we'd figure out, like, okay, maybe this is the channel. We drop a couple of lights, when we, only when we're sure, because we don't want the whole bay filled with these little green stick lights, because we couldn't figure out how to read them coming back the other way. So we were very judicious in how we dropped them. So, you know, and I'm, I'm at the same time, I've got the chart, and I'm marking on the chart exactly where we are. So I'm, you know, I'm drawing lines and putting little dots for that waypoint and for this waypoint and for that waypoint as we move forward. And this is all guesstimation. This is all looking through the binoculars, okay, estimating that, um, you know, a half a mile from the shore off of this bluff, okay, and then, you know, taking a second position, okay, and um, this is, you know, 240 degrees to you know, to, to starboard and, it, you know, doing all the math and figuring it all out and writing it all down and putting it on the chart and where we dropped the little green lights. It took three hours minimum to get through until we got close enough to the beach of where this was going to happen. And then we get there, we drop the anchor, and I hear... At this point, I turn the engine off, and at this point, I hear a motor. It's a dinghy motor, so I can hear it from the beach. So they're coming out to get the supplies, and they come out in these these really long uh, skiffs, um, these big wooden skiffs. Um, they're fishermen skiffs, and um, we have a quick conversation. And the man standing in the center of the skiff is a Catholic priest. And he says to us very, you know, very genuinely, thank you very much. God bless you and all the rest of this kind of stuff. And we literally offload all of the drugs. And they take him to the beach. We had four, um, four times the boat went in and out of the beach. Okay. By the time they finished going back and forth, to the beach and by the time we got everything done it was about five o'clock in the morning and the graying of the sun coming up was going to happen but it turns out it was going to be a very dark day because it was a lot of heavy clouds over and there was morning rain so we get the anchor up and Florence is just so excited about doing this um, she was she, she was hilariously funny, 
And, and she said, oh, we should eat and we should do this. We should have some wine. We should celebrate. I said, no, not until we get out of this bay and out of Haiti will we decide to even go at that point as far as celebration. So we, we work our way out. And let me tell you, it wasn't a smooth exit. Okay. I literally missed going over the outer barrier reef. Okay. Because somehow the light stick disappeared or went out. I couldn't find it. Total panic. And the last thing, the very last thing that I remember looking up, just as the light was starting to fill in from the sun rising, was the fact that I had driven across the reef. And through the grace of God, had gone right through all the coral heads and the reef itself, had cleared everything literally with inches to spare and into open water. And then I made a course to go due east, set up everything I had, sail was, and just booked. About 10 miles from the border between Haiti no, five miles between the border between Haiti and the Dominican Republic, on the inside part of a reef that runs along the Haitian island right there was a military police boat, dinghy-type. You've seen them super fast, machine gun on the front, same thing that U.S. Navy Coast Guard uses, flying along to try to catch us. So we're zooming along. I'm going as fast. I got the engine. I've got the engine total on. I've got it turned all the way up. I've got, you know, the wind. I'm actually, you know, the wind is nothing, but the wind is sort of south, southeast, and I'm going east. So I'm, you know, I don't have a lot going for me at this particular juncture except for my engine running flat out. And I'm bolding along. And this, at this time, Florence is getting very, very nervous. She's, she's thinking, oh, we're going to get caught. We're going to get caught. And these guys are like, they're flying along. And they've got a guy manning that machine gun. It's a 60 cal. He's got manning that machine gun. And they're getting closer and getting closer and getting closer. The, the only problem is, is that they're on the inside part of the reef. And we're on the outside part of the reef. Of the reef. We have about 5, 10 miles to get to the Haitian border. Not that these guys give a shit which, which line is the border. They just want to get there catch us okay and the driver decides to go over the reef thinking that he's got clear water to get into deeper water where we are and they hit the reef and the guy on the machine gun eats the machine gun because that dinghy stopped dead so it's twice we got away with it three times if you count the coast guard looking for us we cleared our way into the Dominican Republic, worked our way all the way to the end of Hispaniola. We crossed going uh, on the north side of Puerto Rico so we could go into San Juan because that's, I wanted to go into San Juan to come up because we had just basically burnt all, almost all the fuel um, coming and going at that point, and I needed to refuel. 
And I thought, oh, yeah, San Juan would be fine. So I go into San Juan. And now, so that was our rendezvous to meet Tex again. So we go in there. Um, the authorities at San Juan, the customs and stuff, they, the immigration guys, where are you coming from? Oh, I was in Dominica. Do you know that there's an embargo in Haiti? You shouldn't have been there. You should do this. You should do that. Why were you there? I said, oh, it's just me and my friend. We're out sailing around. That's all we're doing, you know. This and then questioned me, you know, for like 20, 30 minutes of just not giving in whatsoever. And finally, they just, as they normally do, just go, oh, well, all right, stamp your passport. So Tex was at the dock. He, he came down to the dock and, and you know, we, we shook hands, we hugged, and, and he thanked me. And he said that the people thanked me and that everything was good and, and that the, the supplies that we left on the, you know, got to the beach were being distributed through the church. And um, that's, that was kind of it. That was the best thing that we could be doing. So he told me, look, Scott, you did, this is good. What you did is good. I said, well, you know, I thanked him. And um, he thanked uh, Florence. And um, I said, why don't you sail back to St. Thomas with us? And he says, oh, no, I'm not getting on that boat. And he says, I get seasick. Anyway, I'm not getting on that boat. So uh, he says, I'm going to the airport and going back to New York now that we've done you know, we've done this and see if we could raise some more money and get some more drugs together. And I said, well, if you, if you need somebody to do it again, give me a call. I'd be happy to do it again. So we shook hands and hugged and said goodbye again, as we did in, in the seventies in Thailand. And off he went, uh, Florence, um, decided to stay in Puerto Rico. Um, she thought this was going to be great fun. So I sailed my boat back to, uh, to Coral Bay, got on my mooring and went back, um, to Red's, ordered myself the greatest hamburger in the Western Hemisphere and a couple of cold beers and really felt like I had done some good in the world. Wow, Scott, that was an amazing story. I can't believe that you made it out of there. I especially loved when the 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 Coast Guard wound up just running aground on the reef that you had spent hours trying to go around, and then that's what allowed you to escape. Kind of kind of a poetic ending to the story. Yeah, it was very crazy. Um, that night, you know, it was it. It, the, it was dark that night and there were clouds and the clouds were coming and going. So you had, um, you know, no moonlight at that time by the time we had offloaded and it was cloudy, which makes the water really, really dark. Um, but these guys were local. I mean, these were the Haitian, this was the Haitian Coast Guard, the military. And um, so, you know, they know the waters and they probably, you know, probably could have gotten through if they were about three feet either to the right or the left, they would have caught us. Um, but, you know, at that point, you know, you can just feign stupidness 
um, which is all, almost always your best defense. And these, oh, I didn't know there was uh, anything. I'm just sailing around. I didn't know there was an embargo and a war going on. You know, <laughs> it's, it's like, yeah. And then they take pity on you because there is a lot of traffic and, you know, not everybody's yeah. informed. And they're overworked and underpaid, I'm sure. Totally underpaid. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So what what do we have planned for next week's episode? Well, this is this is I'm going to go with a suggestion and to be quite honest, I had not thought about what to do for our 20th episode. I mean, it's the 20th episode and I'm very proud of 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 us getting to this particular juncture of 20 episodes. So I was trying to think of something that that would be fit um, than the 20th number. And I thought that I would talk about an experience I had coming into New York Harbor after being struck by lightning. And I'll go through the whole story uh, next week, but um, the title of the story is Struck by Lightning. Thank you for tuning in. If you like this episode, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, be sure to rate and review. You can find us on Facebook and at offshoreexplorer.org. You can also listen to past episodes at offshore-explorer.simplegas.com. Our theme song is sung by Paulette McWilliams, with additional music by Amanu Itomi and Tommy Twain. Until next time, fair winds and calm seas. <laughs>